Twitter handle at religion of woke, all one word. If you're gonna open up that gap, put wealth in it. All right, some AEI economists were taking a look at the wealth gap, black-white wealth gap. And what they decided to do was look at people who are, you know, now in their 30s, look at their parents when they were in their 30s, and look at their grandparents when they were in their 30s. And when you do that, about 20% of black people are poor for all three of those generations, whereas 1% uh, of white people are poor for all three of those generations. All right, so how about breaking it down by gender? Well, it turns out it's a black male, a black men problem, not a black woman problem. This makes me think of a study I heard about uh, a while back. I, it was a pretty interesting one. It was before I had my podcast, otherwise I'd have an episode on it. But it was kind of looking into uh, schools. You know, what, what do you do for uh, young black people from bad neighborhoods and how can you help them? And so they're, they were looking at like, you know, what if you put them into a better school? And if you took black girls, you know, uh, children who are black and female, and you moved them to a better school, boom, all of a sudden they start doing a lot better. But if you took black boys, you know, uh, non-adult, whatever, black children who are male, and you moved them to a better school, it didn't fix any problems. So to be super blunt about it, basically for black girls, the school is the problem. And for black boys, whatever the problem is, it follows them around. It ain't the school. So, you know, why is that? Uh, I don't think anyone knows exactly. I mean, first off, you better be real careful when you're researching this kind of stuff and the answers you come up with. Don't, you know, don't come up with an answer that blames the wrong person. So, you know, I guess these people would say, uh, systemic racism. And then you'd be like, well, why isn't it happening to the black girls or whatever why isn't it happening to women and they'd be like systemic racism is comp complicated that's why but I'll just take a guess I have no idea it might be that uh, the acting white thing where you're, you're considered uncool if you do your schoolwork and whatnot maybe that's uh, that's more of a boy thing than a girl thing oh right now here's the here's the real dark outlook on that is that, you know, what happens when you take black girls away from their school and move them to a better school? You are taking black girls away from black boys. So, whatever. If you want to fix the school and the black girls' problems, you got to fix the black boys first. And if I recall correctly, like, you know, how do you tell if a black girl is doing better at this school than that school? And one of the ways they did was, uh, Teenage pregnancy. I think teenage pregnancy went way down at the better school. Which makes me think of a study I read about a long time ago, 20 years ago or something. So it probably is not true since all these studies get overturned. But uh, that study said that, you know, alcohol and teen pregnancy, it wasn't, it didn't matter if the girl got drunk, it mattered if the boy got drunk. Drunk boys led to more teen pregnancy. And it might have even been that if the girl was sober and the boy was drunk, that was like the most likely thing to lead to teen pregnancy. Okay, so to bring bring up, uh, you know, things that I don't necessarily think are true, but, you know, you definitely want to know both sides. So the answer could be intersectionality, which I don't think I've discussed here. But there was a Harvard... I mean, now intersectionality means whatever the hell you want it to mean. But originally it had a pretty interesting uh, defined meaning. And there was this Harvard professor, lawyer, I think she did this in the 80s, and this is quite a while ago. And she basically invented the uh, concept of intersectionality. 
I don't know if she was litigating the case or more likely just studying some litigation, but basically there was a factory or place where people worked somewhere and they could easily show that, you know, the number of black people working at the factory and maybe, you know, in management positions, well, you know, they were not, ra they were not being racist. They were not, there we go. They were not discriminated against black people. Because they could just easily show that, look, look at all these black people who are doing jobs and doing great. And then also, they could easily show that they were not discriminating against women. They're like, look at all these women, look at the jobs they're doing, they're all doing great. But it was found that even though they had those two things covered, they were discriminating against black women. And, you know, so that's intersectionality. And I guess, you know, you could imagine, like, some guy who's in charge of hiring, he thinks that black men are great workers, he thinks that... Uh, white women are great workers and then he uh, is not fond of black women so you know you don't have to discriminate against either part of it but when you enter put it all together you could still have some discrimination so i guess we're gonna i guess the idea is that uh you put black and man together that's the discrimination in america as far as it comes to the wealth gap and uh you know being richer than your parents upward mobility so black women, by themselves, they get themselves out of poverty just as good as white women. But families with black women in the family, they're the worst. They're the worst of all the kinds of families of getting out of poverty. Well, so, you know, is that because the black man in the family is not making enough money? Or is that because the black man in the family is not around? These guys I'm listening to are like, ah, but we don't cover that in this study. That's a pretty easy out. So a lot of what these guys are talking about is actually the black and white income gap, not the black and white wealth gap. But black income does not translate into black wealth, whereas white income translates into white wealth a lot better. So you could have three generations of, you know, a black family and three generations of a white family all making the same amount of money. And at the end of the day, the white family will have transferred that wealth down between the generations and then they'll be uh, doing great and the black family will not transfer that income through the generations as wealth and they will not be doing great yeah so basically you got to have money if you want to get wealthy but uh, just having money doesn't mean you will be wealthy which brings me up a thing that Coleman Hughes talks about um, which is luxury goods like they've done you know whatever they've done surveys and uh, poor poor black people are more likely to have, you know, lots of gold jewelry and diamond jewelry and own Cadillacs, you know, to be a little stereotypical, than much richer white people. You know, it's like, what do you spend your money on? Do you spend your money on something that goes up in value, like a house? Or do you spend your money on, I don't know, I guess gold. I guess gold doesn't go, you know, whatever, buying gold jewelry doesn't uh, go up that much. You know, and I'll say, I think buying gold is fine. Like, if you went and bought gold one-ounce coins, uh, you know, for three generations, you'd be doing great. But uh, buying gold necklaces, you know, they probably charge a whatever. If you buy a $1,000 gold necklace, it probably has $200 worth of gold in it. Basically, those things are a rip-off. I would never buy any of those luxury goods. Uh, it makes me think of uh, the Chinese people in Italy, which kind of came out because of COVID. So the super fancy... Uh, just whatever. Italian brands in general. Italian brands in general brought in a whole bunch of Chinese people to Italy. 
as workers, like seamstresses and, you know, people who can work leather. So they can still make their little handbags or their leather shoes and say, made in Italy on them. But, you know, this is not a third generation tailor from, you know, with a, you know, an Italian tailor with three generations of experience. This is a person they just brought from China, cranks it out, basically the same as if it was made in China, but you get to say it was made in Italy. Alright, so what are the possible causes of this? Well, one thing, when you're doing a three-generation study, you know, is the th three generations back the same? And the answer is no. So, black people were a lot poorer three generations ago than whites. So right there, that's gonna, whatever, kind of influence the results. But that doesn't explain everything because, you know, even in the latest generation, they just there's a lot more downward mobility with uh, black people versus white people. All right, so the way they're running their study is they're saying you're in poverty if you're in the bottom 20%. So three generations ago, 60% of black people were in poverty and 9% of white people. And they're saying that apparently most studies only look at two generations. That's what's special about this one, looking at three. But I mean, right there, you can basically just throw out that third generation. I mean, it's so overwhelming, you don't even need it. I don't know. Unless you're going to try and explain how, uh, you know, systemic racism caused that generation to be poor. But, you know, I think when you go back then, you got real, you know, you don't have to make up fake systemic racism reasons. You got real racism back then. You can be like, oh, well, they're poor because they were not allowed to buy a house, period. Or, oh, they were poor because they were not allowed to get a job, period. But that's the weird thing. You'd think, well, if you started from such a bad spot, you know, three generations ago, there'd be nowhere to go but up. But, in fact, whatever. For white people, they did go up, and then for black people, they didn't go up like you would have thought. And I'll just mention this stat here. So if you hold constant four things, which are age, region of country that you live in, years of education, and your score on the SAT or similar, uh, then blacks make 1% less than whites. So that's kind of interesting. So basically, you know, you take a similar type of person, you know, you take this software engineer who's black and this software engineer who's white, and they're going to make the same. I mean, 1%, we'll call that the exact same. Um, but apparently, after a few generations, that white software engineer's family is going to be doing, or whatever, is going to be a lot wealthier than uh, that black software engineer's family. Well, so what's the problem? Uh, before we get to that, this guy's like, well, because whites move out of poverty real easy, and blacks don't, he's like, I'm afraid of people thinking that it's a black mobility problem, not, like a mo not just a mobility problem in America. Which makes me think of, uh, I was, you know, listening to a guy talk about what's going on with Hispanics in America. And the answer is with them, you know, a couple generations, they go from poor as heck immigrants to doing real good. I guess maybe we can go to that uh, BIPOC word, black indigenous people of color. So I don't think indigenous people are doing good either, even though no one ever talks about them. I'm sure you do three generations of uh, people living on the res, you're not going to find a good result. So basically, it's black and indigenous, and then, you know, it's everyone else. Everyone else is, whatever, a part of whiteness. So something to look at is where you live. So 3% of white people live in a poor neighborhood where everyone around them is poor, and 16% of black people live in a poor neighborhood where every one of them is poor. 
don't know. What you, that sounds like a chicken or the egg thing, you know? Is it, are you poor because your neighborhood is poor, or is your neighborhood poor because you're poor? But it makes me think of something I want to research some more, um, which is Singapore. Singapore is like a, it's a city and a country all in one, and it's super rich. Super rich. I think their kids always get the highest scores on, like, national math tests. It's also a diverse city. Like I say, I need to research it more. So I don't know. They got like three kinds of people there. I forget what the three are. Maybe Indonesian, Malaysian, something like that. Probably some indigenous group that got screwed over. But they have a rule that no neighborhood can be all one kind of person. So if they had a bunch of blacks and whites, for instance, you, you know, if, if a neighbor, neighborhood was like half black and half white, then um, they'd be looking at you. Let's, uh, let's, let's not go half and half. Let's go with, uh, let's say a neighborhood was 60% white and 40% black in, in, uh, in Singapore. Well, they'd be like, ah, 60% white, that's too white. No more white people can move to this neighborhood. Only black people can move to this neighborhood. Anyways, in America, we got a constitution that I think would stop that cold, and we definitely got attitudes that stop that cold. Like, you know, everyone, whatever, they, uh, they said no one can be kept out of any neighborhood, and then everyone self-segregated into neighborhoods of the, of the same race, pretty much. Except, I guess, immigrants, maybe they, uh, they moved probably into the white neighborhoods. Yeah, no, the Koreans moved into the black neighborhoods and started stores. Yeah, so immigrants went everywhere. And apparently in Singapore, all the races get along real good. So they mentioned systemic racism. Uh, I was ready for a bunch of BS on that anyways. And he's just like, you know, that's an ill-defined term that I don't think really uh, contributes to the discussion of this issue. So I was impressed by that. But then he says there's uh, structural differences, you know, System, structure, and institution, right? These are all interchangeable when you want to add the word racism. Anyways, I don't. I think what he's saying is fine. Um, the problem is, is that he's like, since 1960, you know, these structures, blah, 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 cause problems. And more and more, like, people, you know, people who are counter-narrative that I respect are saying the problem started in 1960. And then even more and more woke people that, uh, whatever, that aren't counter-narrative are saying something happened in 1960 and made things go kind of bad. And unfortunately, this guy, he's just, you know, his study, all right, we're going to start in 1960, so we don't really know, whatever, you know, we don't know if it was like the end of segregation that started making stuff go bad. I've said this, and I think I'll, I said or will say this in another podcast, it's like, John uh, owns a store in a black neighborhood. John is black and he owns a store in a black neighborhood and his kids go to college and all his employees are black. And then uh, when segregation ends, they build a, you know, a Woolworths or a Walmart outside of the neighborhood and then boom, there ain't no stores and people with jobs in that neighborhood. Now, this is a theory that I have and sounds good to me, obviously, otherwise I wouldn't bring it up. I'd definitely like to know more about that. And also, obviously, that's a lightning rod thing. Like, if, if it's found that that is the truth, whatever, you get fired from your professorship, you get, I don't know if you get kicked off of Twitter, but your friends will probably disown you. And they're talking about the politics of poverty in America right now, 2021. Like, since Donald Trump got elected, there's been a lot of, you know, people talking about poor white people, you know? Like, you know, these poor white people are struggling, and that's, that's why they're, uh, voting for Donald Trump, plus they're racist, obviously. 
no non-racist person would ever vote for, for Donald Trump, even if they're Hispanic or black. But anyways, with the opioid deaths and uh, I think what I'm going to call the, the people of Appalachia, that's like people of color, but that's the, the white poor person of color. People of Appalachia. He's a person of color. Oh yeah, well he's a person of Appalachia. But anyway, so people on the left, right, they always want to help black people and they always want to help poor people. And so there's kind of this idea that maybe maybe the center left and the center right can come together and instead of like just doing something that helps black people, they can do something that helps poor people. You know, and this will be a lot more politically palatable. Like, people will be more likely to vote for it, you know, if they think, oh, this will help my, you know, my uh, Uncle Jim Bob. But based on what these guys are saying, how you can make a lot of money and still you don't pass wealth through the generations, um, I think what that means is we got a complicated problem. You might do stuff that helps all poor people a ton, and then you still probably are not going to close the black-white wealth gap. That's a separate issue. It's going to need a separate something-something. All right, so there's a couple guys talking here, and uh, they get into a little bit of a disagreement on the word systemic racism. I guess one of them thinks it's okay. The other goes like, I don't know if that's helping. But the guy who thinks it's okay, he points out that um, this is once you start college. So a lot of people don't even start college. But anyways... 38% of black men who start college graduate, and 69% of white women graduate. So I think that's the biggest gap, right? You know, white women graduate the, well, out of blacks and whites. You know, they never bring Asians into this. Who knows? They probably blow away white women. But anyways, black men versus white women and graduation rates, rates in college, uh, no comparison, almost double. So he's like, you know, that could be called systemic racism. There is a... The output of the system is unequal, so maybe we can call that systemic racism. And then the other guy says what I absolutely 100% agree with, which is, he's like, if you call this systemic racism, then this means you are going to have to go around and stop racism. You know, the only way to solve a problem caused by systemic racism is to solve racism. And even if you really broadly define racism, basically... That's not the problem. You can't, you can't get there from here. Solving that, solving a problem that doesn't exist, is never going to give you the result that you want. And see, so he goes early. And if you want to solve this problem, you've go, you got to go early. And once again, I agree. And he says that uh, at the age of five, test scores between black and, blacks and whites have, are already enormous. There's an enormous gap already, age of five. So you're going to have to figure out a way. You know, you're going to have to have family stability... Uh, safe neighborhoods. I mean, obviously, that's a very easy thing to say. Oh, just make the neighborhood safe. Oh, just make the family stable. But anyways, those are the things that have to be worked on, not uh, fighting systemic racism in college, you know, 15 years too late. And so he gives a couple examples. Of, you know, if you think it's systemic racism, well, what do you do? Well, you do a ton of affirmative action for Ivy League schools. Maybe you get rid of the SAT entirely. Oh, they're not getting good, high, you know, whatever. Equal scores, test scores are not happening. Why don't we just get rid of the test entirely? And so his point is that those things ain't going to help poor black people at all. And so bringing up systemic racism is just, whatever, it's obfuscating the problem. It's making, the, it's making it worse. It's almost making it worse. Like, I'm going to do this thing that ain't going to fix it. And I'm going to spend the next 10 years working on something that ain't going to fix the problem. Well, you just wasted 10 years. You wasted 10 years and 
That's a whole generation of kids that ain't being helped once again. Well, so what about the SAT score? Apparently the black-white SAT score gap, according to these people, they're using words like enormous. So I don't know how many points that is, but it's a lot. And there was this thing, like the SAT, that's a, that's a um, for-profit corporation, I believe, that runs the SAT. And maybe about two years ago, they were talking about adding um, an adversity score. Which I think was basically, you know, it was trying to just be your race. Here's your race. You know, hey, college, here's a number, and here's the race of the kid. Which we'll put a, you know, we'll put a number on that for you. So you don't have to look racist when you use uh, other criteria, like personality, where Asians score terribly. But anyways, if done correctly, it actually probably could work pretty good. Like, I mean, here's the example this guy gives. He's like... My kid got a 1300 on the SAT, which is a very good score. And, you know, and he mentions the neighborhood he lives in, which is some very rich part of Maryland, you know, basically DC suburb. And he's like, well, you know, if my kid got a 13, and then you go find a kid from the, the ghetto who got a 1200, he's like, who's smarter? He's like, I bet that kid with a 1200 from the ghetto is smarter than my kid with a, you know, who, had, who led a super privileged life in all ways, who got a 1300. And I think if they did it that way, I think that would be awesome. I think he's right. You know, that if you, can, if you live in the terrible ghetto and get a 1200, you are a smart cookie. You're amazing. The problem is, in rich neighborhoods around D.C., every kid's getting a 1300. And then you go to the poor ghetto neighborhoods of D.C., and it's like, you know, is one in a hundred getting a high score? You know, getting 1200? Like, basically, that would be my guess. Maybe one in a hundred of them is getting that score. And our current system is already sending that person to Harvard or wherever the heck they want to go. But anyways, I guess you could you could try and figure something out and, uh, you know, go by zip code and average SAT score and give people a little bit of a bump there. I think Harvard, right, I think it's like maybe black people get a 950 or something and then Asians get like a 1400 or something. I mean, it's it's enormous. A little bit of tweaking is not going to change it. These gaps are enormous. Maybe blacks get an 1100 and Asians get a 1400. It's something like that. I think it's about 300. 250 to 350 difference. Which, you know, like, if you want to know, like, just imagine your high school. So just imagine uh, a totally average student at your high school and then imagine the smartest kid in your entire high school. That's like the difference. All right, the issues with the adversity score thing is coming back to me now. They weren't really trying to find, like, diamond in the roughs, you know, uh, smart kids from bad neighborhoods. They were trying to, you know, they were just trying to give a better score to uh, black people, basically. Like, if you were a smart white kid who came from a dumb white Appalachian zip code, they weren't trying to lift you up and get you into a good school. I mean, maybe a little bit, but not much. I forget how they did it, but it just wasn't like, oh, what's the average test score of where you come from? They were getting, whatever, they were getting race in there. And I think the reason it's like, you know, like Harvard has this personality thing where they use that to get rid of Asians. You know, and that's unseemly. They don't want to do that. They, they'd like to be able to just pick the people they want and they don't want to have to make up some weird thing about Asians having bad personalities. So basically colleges are like, hey, SAT company, can you give us a number? So, you know, we're like, oh, we didn't do anything. It was just the SAT number. Anyways, there's a lot of criticism, and the SATs dropped that idea. 
that's kind of a problem that happens with college admissions a lot. It's like, I know people who uh, have gone to Ivy League, Princeton, uh, Yale. I, think I, know, I don't think I know any Harvard people. Anyways, and what it is, they got in based on being dirt poor. Like, they were smart as hell, and they were dirt poor. And they came from a state. That's another thing that Harvard likes, you know, like, they don't want people from Massachusetts and New York and California. They want people from North Dakota. So, you know, if you can be smart as hell, poor as hell, and come from a weird-ass state that they don't have any people from, that does count towards uh, various criteria at Harvard. But long story short, you start doing all those things. Who are those people? They're white. Oh, you live in a terrible neighborhood in St. Louis? Well, that's Missouri. We don't need any more people from the state of Missouri. we got tons of them. And then the guy brings up, uh, you know, he's like, 1,300 and 1,200? That don't sound right. How about 1,300 versus 900? Now what do you do? Which I already discussed. And even 900 may be a high score for a bad neighborhood. And most of those people don't take the SAT at all or graduate. Then a point is brought up that uh, black boys do well when they are in neighborhoods that have a lot of black fathers around. Like, they don't have to have their own black father just as long as there's lots of fathers around. And so, you know, that's a system. That's the part of the, the structural systems of institution. But they don't really, you know, like, how do you, make the, how do you get that done? That's what everyone wants. How do you get that done? Uh, basically, that's like the last thing I say. And they're like, okay, let's wrap up the podcast and don't talk about that anymore. I don't know the answer on that one. Let me let me see. What what's my hypothesis there? I mean, partly it's culture, you know, you listen to too many rap songs about F and B's. <laughs> Probably not gonna lead to a good situation. But I think, you know, like a mom, a single mom, a single mom does not want a, a dad around if you ain't got no job. Or more importantly, if you ain't got no money. You don't have to have a job, you just gotta have money. You're not contributing to the family structure if you got no money, right? You're sitting around on the couch playing video games all day, eating whatever's in the fridge. And so that's why I think universal basic income is a good idea. I think, uh, you know, if every if every father, doesn't have to be any, any race at all, if every father was getting a check from the government so they could put some of that money towards the kid, right? Like now that father is putting money towards the kid, not taking money away from the, the mom, that's what I think the solution is. Now, we don't know if that would work at all. It's never been tried. It may work terribly, but that's what I would like to see tried. All right, so these guys ain't proposing UBI. What do they propose? What do they think might work? Well, the first thing they propose, and I, I think it's a great idea, is they need a, you know, the White House or whoever. They need to do a thing where they test out a million different uh, ideas on how to help, you know, super young kids getting ready for school, you know, like basically under five. Because as they admit, we got no clue. Like, you know, if we if there was something that you knew about, oh, you do this, and then uh, when they're coming to school at five years old, they'll be ready to go. Anyways, no one knows what that thing is. So you just need to test a bunch of things and find out, uh, you know, if anything can be done. And then one example he gives is uh, some program in San Francisco uses text messaging so they send parents like you know you got a little baby they send you a text message that says the next time you give your kid a bath point to all the things that start with the letter h 
And they also mentioned that Head Start has been a complete failure in closing any sort of educational gap between black and white. But they think, you know, a lot of people make their living from Head Start, and so don't you attack Head Start, you racist. Right, so then they, they mentioned housing vouchers. That was the thing they did where they basically they're like, we'll give you money. Hey, hey, single black mom, we'll give you money for your house, but you have to move to a better neighborhood. You can't stay where you are. And that was the one where when they moved and the, the kids were girls, it worked great. And when the kids were boys, it didn't do any good. And they don't mention that part. I guess it's whatever. Obviously, that's an uncomfortable aspect of that housing voucher situation. So I don't, I haven't heard about this before, so I don't fully know, but hey, what about free college? Well, apparently in the UK, they did this and it backfired. It made uh, poor people, made, hard, made it harder for poor people to uh, get out of poverty and it helped rich people. I think there it's like, if you can get a score on a test over some number, then you get free college. Well, that didn't help poor people, right? That's just like rich people are like, sweet, college is free. Now, instead of my parents paying 200 grand for college, they can just give me 200 grand and I can buy a condo in London. Or at least put a down payment on it. Uh, then they mentioned baby bonds. Um, I'm not exactly sure what baby bonds are. I think it's kind of like uh, every baby who's born. I think you gotta be poor. I mean, basically, it's for black people, but maybe they go by poverty level. So I think like every person who's under a, whatever, every person who's in poverty, I think they had to set up like a checking account or something for the baby and then maybe they put in a hundred dollars a month and then at some age you get to start taking out the money I don't think you, you know you can't just take out the hundred dollars a month and buy cigarettes um, maybe when you're 12 you can start taking it out or maybe you can only spend it towards school maybe you can only spend it towards college I'm not sure anyways the guy's like is this gonna help close the wealth gap I have no idea. You know, is this going to make test scores higher? I have no idea. He's like, but I think, you know, it's probably a good idea anyways. Just give people some money. And uh, so I probably agree with that. And I don't think it will change any of those other things. But hey, you know, you're in a terrible school system. You've got terrible grades. You turn 18 and now you got, uh, whatever, 20 grand to spend on something. I think a lot of those people will just buy a luxury car and whatever, waste all the money. You know, some of those people put a down payment on a house, so that'd be cool. I guess it depends, you know, how much does it cost to do the baby bonds and how good, how much good does it do? Well, so what do you do? I mean, why they got to bury the lead, right? We're getting to the absolute end of this podcast, and he's like, well, every one of these problems comes down to black men. If we can't help black men do better, then we can't help black families do better. And if you can't help black families do better, then you can't help black kids do better. And if you can't help black kids do better, then you're gonna not have a good transfer of wealth from generation to generation. Well, and so that's the end of the discussion. Basically, you can ignore the whole, you can ignore the whole thing, except for the last couple sentences where he says, we gotta do something about black men, they're doing terribly, and they're bringing down the whole black experience. Well, whatever. That's hyperbole. I mean, a ton of black people are doing great. But anyways, amongst the ones who are doing poorly, black men are the, whatever, black men doing poorly is the cause of the ones who are doing poorly. Kids, the women, all of them.